Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self enlightened one. Um, there was, uh, oh, first of all, have I now seen everybody individually? Is anybody I've missed? No? Good. If I have, leave me a note. Um, is this a little too loud? Is okay? Eh? No. Eh? Yeah, I thought so. <clears throat> I can always speak softer, of course. <laughs> is that a bit better? <coughs> yeah? Um... Tonight I actually want to do the brighter side of meditation, the, uh, the factors of enlightenment and the, <laughs> and the spiritual faculties. But there is, a, uh, there is one question that I'll just give very quick, uh, quick uh, di- uh, pointers to anyway. Remorse and uh, grief. Um, when we do something harmful, uh, we fear the consequences of that. And... Uh, Normally, that's the, the word in the Pali is translated as dread. The word guilt is really an acceptance of, you know, I did it. Um, but there's a deeper guilt, which you can call a sort of existential guilt, which is peculiar really to the West because of the um, teachings of sin, born in sin. Uh, Easterners don't have this that sort of existential guilt because... Um, both Hinduism and, uh, and uh, Buddhism say that the ground is ignorance. So it's not... Uh, <coughs> sinfulness is, shall we say, secondary, comes out of that mistake. Um, and um, when, when feelings like that come up, it's, you know, it's exactly the same uh, technique. You just feel them and you just make sure your mind isn't, isn't working on them and just sort of be with it, and eventually these things evaporate. Shame uh, arises because of our self-esteem. So when we do something against our image of ourselves, then that's what you feel. You feel embarrassed, feel, feel a loss of, um, of uh, self-esteem. And, and if, you lose your, if you lose face in other people, it, from other people's point of view, that's also a point of embarrassment for, from, uh, for us. Remorse is the healing bit. That's the compunction. That's when you uh, b- uh, begin to go through that process of uh, knowing that you've done something harmful and trying to put it right. See, So remorse is actually a very healing feeling, even though it's an unwholesome one because we shouldn't be feeling it anyway because we shouldn't have done something wrong in the first place. <laughs> So, but it's, it is the, the good side of that process. Grief um, is to do with the loss of something which we hold dear. 
and it's an attachment. So you have to be careful. I think I mentioned it last night. Um, sometimes when somebody leaves or when somebody dies, especially, there's that grief. And because we associate grief with love, every time the grief begins to diminish, we think we're losing love for that person. And therefore, we've got to pump up the grief a bit more. So, <laughs> so you just keep in this vicious circle of grief, grief, more grief. So the way to overcome that is to recognize that the grief is actually the wound that's left in our own hearts because something's been ripped out of it. And it's nothing to do with love. It's something to do with our own hearts. And it's just a case of being with it and letting it burn and suffering it. And eventually it heals itself. Love is a different thing, isn't it? It's a, it love is very... It's a, it allows things to happen. And one wishes the person who's died or whatever uh, the best wishes if, they, if they're going on. Um, I don't think you can... So long as we have a self, we'll always suffer these things. It's not possible. <laughs> you know, it's like... That's the end game. The Nibbanic state is when these things don't arise anymore. So our job is uh, knowing things as they really are and knowing how to deal with them so that we quickly heal uh, the consequences of either wrongdoing or sudden loss, etc., in our own hearts. And that's the skillfulness of dealing with um, the product of delusion. That's what, you're, that's what you're learning here, you see. So if there are questions arising out of that, you can post them on the board. And, you know, we'll have lots of time on Saturday for just discussion, really, whatever comes up. So what I want to do uh, this evening is just uh, give an overall view of what we call the spiritual faculties and the factors of enlightenment, so the spiritual faculties begin with faith. They have uh, effort, awareness. There's always awareness. Uh, concentration or focus, the ability to keep the mind still, and wisdom. And uh, those, are, those are known as the spiritual faculties. Uh, the factors of enlightenment, those qualities that need to be developed in order to have insight, are much the same. There's your awareness, and then there's the passive side that we develop when we're doing this um, abiding in the present moment, which is the, the calmness, the steadiness of attention, and the equanimity. And balancing that on the other side of the active factors, which brings about the insight, which is the effort and the interest, you see, and ultimately what... Um, turns all these qualities, which are natural qualities in every human being, but what turns it into something which is going to bring about spiritual insight is the investigation of the Dharma. And specifically, we're talking about the three characteristics. So you can have all these faculties, but you can still be as deluded as a horse. See? <laughs> and it's just a case of recognizing that. And what, what allows us to make spiritual insight is that we're investigating some, some, uh, some characteristics of our lives which undermines these essential delusions. shouldn't say things like that about horses, should I? I mean, they're, they're nice creatures. <laughs> so um, if we go through these things now, faith, for instance... 
So faith in, uh, in the Buddha's understanding is not belief. That's a confusion for us. You know, when somebody asks you what your faith is, uh, there's, there's a sort of dual meaning as to what do you believe in. So belief is a trust, a, a sort of blanket trust, an unquestionable trust in a statement. You know, um, like the Buddha was fully enlightened. So most Buddhists would fall into the, into the error of believing that. <laughs> but, but that's not what the Buddha's calling for. He never asked us to believe a word of what he said. His, his position was, this is true for me. Is it true for you? Right? And then he gave us a methodology whereby we could ex, uh, investigate this and find out for ourselves if it's true for us. Now, the problem with belief is, is that if you believe something, you tend to rest in the security of that belief. And it hinders that special effort to find out whether it's really true or not. And on the real downside, a belief is a concept. And therefore, if we do investigate from a position of I believe, you'll simply convince yourself of your own belief, <laughs> which can be as deluded as anybody else's. So uh, a belief has to be thrown into the waste bin. What sadha is, translated often as faith, is trust, confidence. And um, that trust and confidence is, is what uh, is the basis of your practice. Without faith, there's no commitment. If you don't trust something, you just don't commit yourself to it. You go to the doctor and you say you've got this, you've got this pain in the lobe of your ear and he, and he prescribes this prescription and he says it's a dreadful thing. If you don't believe him, you're not going to take the prescription. It's as simple as that. So <clears throat> that faith, that trust has to be something which we develop. And it comes by way of hearing the Dharma and it strikes you as true. And you read a bit more, then you think a bit more, and then it becomes your sort of intellectual property. You know, like you've thought it through, and, and this is your understanding. Uh, and, those, and then the knowledge is deepened by way of actual experience. So here's the Buddha saying, uh, uh, not self, you see. So you might hear it and you think, not self, a lot of rubbish. And then you read a bit more and you think, well, maybe there's a bit of truth in that. And then, then you think about it and you get yourself into knots. And then you think, oh, yeah, maybe. And then you start looking, you see. And then you can't see it and you think, oh, there's a lot of rubbish. And you keep looking and then finally you think, oh, that's what he means. See? So it's that sort of process of receiving uh, wisdom, uh, making it our own through our own thinking process, and then really experiencing it so it's actually our our experience, see? So that's the process of faith. And you can see that this faith balances with the fifth spiritual faculty, which is this panya, this wisdom, right? And the panya there also has an active form in terms of an insight. In the factors of enlightenment, that is the combination of the interest and the interested investigation of the Dharma. And it brings this panya, this interest. Panya, this, this nya in the word, comes right through to our language as no, kenosis, gn. It's a sort of root that comes right the way through the Indo-European languages. And pa is just a reinforcer. So we translate it as insight, a direct knowledge of something.
So uh, faith is something that um, has to be there before you even meditate. So the fact that you're all here meditating means that you must have faith. It's as simple as that. Um, you might, of course, uh, leave this retreat and think, well, that's, that's, that's a lot of rubbish, and whatever faith you had might disappear. <laughs> so it's not as though once you have it, you've got it forever. It's, it's, it's that it has to be uh, constantly fueled and, and practiced on. And uh, we were talking about the five, uh, the five hindrances, one of which is this doubt, this skeptical doubt. So this faith is not just faith in the Buddha's Dharma. It's not just faith in the actual teachings you're receiving or the, or the, um, uh, the, the methodology that you're practicing, the technique. It's also faith in yourself, you see. So that also has to be sometimes sort of gingered up, you know. You've got to... When, you, when these silly thoughts come in, you know, that I, I can't do this, you know, I'm, I'm rather special that way. So <laughs> you have to sort of look at that and, and not, not give in to it. And you're probably overreaching, probably going for some sort of perfection or trying to achieve something and then rating your success by what you've set yourself as an achievement and nobody else has done, see. So it's a case of just being careful with that business of faith in oneself. It can be quite pernicious. So that's your balance. That's the connection of faith, trust, into commitment, into practice, leading to insight. That's your, that's your connection with faith. The, um, the, the, the combination of effort and... Um, concentration or focus that's that's a dodgy one because uh, what's empowering your investigation has a great effect upon your effort so if effort um, is has an extra energy in there of wanting to achieve then you're putting in um, first of all an extra effort which normally turns into a restlessness a sort of shaking but worse, of course, you're coming from this conceptual idea of what it is you want to achieve. Even if you've no, even if you've no conceptual idea, like there's just this, I want to achieve Nibbana, and you haven't a clue what Nibbana is, you can't even spell it. See, just, just, the fact that, just the fact that you've set yourself that goal in the future is something which cramps into the present because you're trying to move the present into some future result. See? So... This practice of quiet abiding, where we're just resting in the present moment, you see, that's why it's so important, because then, resting in the present moment, being in contact with what is given in the present moment, we investigate this present moment. For no other reason than this is what's being presented, see? And if we stay at that rock base of the present, of the presenting moment, which is always some form of sensation or feeling, mood, emotion. So if you stay right there with what's being presented, then this extra, eff <coughs> extra effort doesn't happen. But it's not as easy, that is it, because uh, you know, we're, we're trained always to, um, you know, to, to live in a sort of, to live in a future. And uh, society has to do that. You have to plan some sort of future. You have to, I mean, if you decide to go on holiday, you've got you to plan it. See? So it's not as though planning in itself is something evil. Um, it's just that in the meditation it becomes a corruption. See? 
So any movement towards some future moment, even if it's just the next moment, will corrupt the meditation. You might, for instance, uh, come across this sort of thing about um, your footstep, you see. So you're doing this. It's intending to rise, or lifting, moving. And your mind's already there, waiting for it to be placed. (laughs) He's waiting for it to land. Yeah, and he's moving. He's not landing. You're, oh, God, where's the ground gone? (laughs) And I've seen some funny things, I tell you. Where people, because you want to concentrate so much, you close your eyes. And you can see people, their footsteps are like, and they're sort of searching for the ground with his foot. <laughs> yeah, some very funny things. And sort of huge, sort of goose steps. And, and sort of, you know, trying to. So all, all that, of course, is taking us off the actual purpose of what we're trying to do. So it's very difficult for us, you see, to, to stay with the actual presenting moments. Extraordinarily difficult, because the mind's always moving forward. See? Now, the reason why, of course, is the self really doesn't like the present. Not the present in any absolute sense. It doesn't mind the present when it's enjoying itself, on the presumption that it keeps on enjoying itself. (laughs) But it doesn't like the present when it doesn't know what's going to happen next. I mean, that is fearful. I mean, if you, it's like, you know, it's like in, in a war zone, you know, and, and, and you know the bombs are coming. You don't know what's going to happen next. It's very frightening, yeah? So to stay there, you might come across this fearfulness. That's a good sign, you see. That's, that's the self shaking, see? And it's staying with that fearfulness. Sometimes it can come very strong, which is um, the breakup of that relationship. See, remember, the self isn't a thing. It's a relationship, the relationship we have with the world, which is that we want to control it, we want to be in charge of it, and we want to make it a good and happy place for ourselves. So when we're, when we're beginning to see the ending of things, when we're beginning to not to, when we begin to shake because we're trying to stay in the present moment, then, you know, take that as a positive sign because that's the, that's the slow uh, uh, corruption of the self, you see. It's slowly undermining itself. And remember that any time the self begins to uh, disappear, a new relationship is being formed. See, it's, not, it's not as though you're going to end up in some sort of nihilistic state without the self, sort of a blank. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not quite like that. One is simply forming a different relationship with the world, which is not based on you know, uh, the, the fear of the future. Okay? So uh, effort and concentration. Now, if you get too much effort, you see, that's, uh, all, all you get is restlessness. You, you, you know you're overdoing it, right? You're getting tense. It shows in the way you're sitting sometimes. You know, you, you're getting like this and you're getting pain in the neck. And that's, and that's when you sort of, <laughs> sort of loosen up a bit, you know? <laughs> when you have too much concentration, well, you can't have too much concentration as such, but when the concentration's very, very good... And it may happen, you know, over the next two or three days as you deepen, uh, you know, and the energy suddenly drops, you see. That's when you fall asleep. Now, there's a difference between that sleep and the ordinary, you know, banging of your head on the floor. Normally speaking, when the concentration's very good, you see, the meditator's like this, and they look in, from, from the outside, they look as though they are absolutely, you know, right in the meditation, but actually there's nothing there. <laughs> the energy is there, you see, it's holding them up, and it's absolutely strict, you see. 
And there's a lovely story in Hinduism where there's a, um, a sadhu who says, um, he asks somebody to get him some water. And he goes into this uh, meditation and he goes into this, this, this uh, unconsciousness, unconscious state. And you can be in that unconscious state for various lengths of time, depending on the energy. See, it's dependent on the energy. It's just not enough to keep you conscious. See? And as the tale goes, years later, he woke up, you see. What was his first words? Where's the water? <laughs> Nothing had happened. <laughs> so if you find yourself going into a, that sort of blank, you see, don't... Uh, often people, because they think of Nibbana as being some sort of blank, they think they've, they've touched upon Nibbanic bliss. But unfortunately, it's just a blank. <laughs> Nothing to be gained. <laughs> Nothing has been gained, frankly. So um, uh, that's, the, that's some of the problems you can come across with the right effort. But the main one that we suffer from on a small retreat, a weak retreat, is just over-effort. So just be careful of that, that you're not... You're not um, putting something into your, into your effort which is overreaching the present experience, the present moment. Yeah? And remember, you can do this reflection any time. You, know, you don't have to wait till the end of a sitting. You know, when you've exhausted yourself, you can, you can do it in the middle of a sitting at any time. You can think, now, what, am I doing this right? Do I, see? And as I say, if there's any confusion about that, then see me uh, you know, as quickly as you can because it's wasting time otherwise. You're just wasting time in a state of confusion. Now, the other two things that match together are this calmness and, and interest. So calmness, uh, actually the Buddha begins the discourse on how to establish this right awareness by first of all asking us to get in contact with just the raw sensation of the breath. So, he, you know, he, the way he puts it is, this is a long breath and this is a short breath. Like the, the, medi- the, the meditator knows this is a short breath, this is a long breath. But then you begin to develop this calmness on the breath. So there's some connection between the calmness of the body and the calmness of the mind. And that's where you begin. You begin by your meditation by just calming the body, calming the mind. And it doesn't matter how long it takes, just, just wait for it to sort of happen. And then you raise this curiosity, this, um, this interest. Now, if the interest becomes too interested, you see, then you get this shaking again. You get this, this um, wanting to see something. And you lose the calmness. The interest becomes excited. Hmm? And if there's too much calmness and not enough interest, uh, you fall asleep. <laughs> so we're always in this business of either getting too much effort, a bit of excitement, a bit of restlessness, or too little, fall asleep. See, So <laughs> getting that medium line, getting that balance, getting that tightrope is, um, it, well, it's difficult, but we can do it. I mean, you know, you just, 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 keep, uh, just keep yourself uh, with the right intention, you see. That's the, that's the important thing. So you can see that uh, the calmness and the interest will balance each other. And uh, interest, what is that interest? Well, uh, right at the beginning of the retreat, I was talking about the Buddha and um, how he re-inspired himself when he remembered how as a child he'd watched his father doing this plowing ceremony. 
And he'd gone into what's known as a, an absorption state. But it wasn't an absorption state simply to develop a beautiful state of mind. It was an absorption state which was, which was uh, produced by an intense interest. And it was that, you see, that childlike mind of coming from a place of don't know, not sure, what is it, and the way that the child locks into an object, you know, and you can see they've stopped thinking. They've stopped thinking because there's that openness to what they're experiencing, and it's just flooding in, you know. And when there's that flooding in and it's been sort of digested, that's when they turn around and say, you know, what is that? See, so it's really getting back to that state, which is our job. Just simply the childlike, the childlike way of looking at something. And uh, you, you know, you can see it in uh, you can see it in animals. Actually, I had a lovely experience. I was in, uh, I went to there's a, a Mahasi center in Penang, just off the coast of um, Malaysia, and. Um, I I was offered this uh, house, well, it's a house, I suppose, a bungalow out in the plantation, high up on a hill. And um, um, I'd got myself uh, some coffee, and I'd um, put a table out onto the garden there, which overlooked right into the sea down the slope, and uh, off the ground because of bugs and stuff, you see. And I'd hung off this tree... Uh, a mosquito net and uh, what I determined to do was as it was getting dusk was to uh, sit under this net on, on this table with my cup of coffee and, <laughs> and um, observe the sunset and it got darker and darker and it suddenly occurred to me that I was looking eastward <laughs> anyway I overcame this acute disappointment and uh, what, uh, what every evening this <laughs> These two dogs would come and chase each other. They were great friends, and the one would run after the other, and suddenly the other one would run after the other, and they, they used to chase each other around this bungalow. And uh, one had turned up, and the other, his friend hadn't turned up, you see, and uh, it, it, was, it was whining and stuff like that. You know, it was quite young, a young dog. Anyway, the friend came, and um, it was very interesting. He was obviously a bit older, a bit more mature, and uh, he was trying to push him to run, you see. And as he came round, he saw this table and this mosquito net and something in it, you see. And, he's, and, and the dog's messing about. And he, and he sort of looked at me and went... <laughs> <laughs> it was the strangest thing to see. <laughs> I didn't tell him, of course. <laughs> Keep him mystified. <laughs> and then they went off running. But that just, that just showed me that... This, this inquisitiveness, this Buddha nature is in all sentient beings. It's there it's in some way of, of uh, this, this wonderful primal intelligence we have. So it's really uh, developing that uh, particular curiosity which is the key to insight. So um, we've been through um, you know, the faith and the, and, and the process whereby we gain wisdom through this um, reflection, through receiving knowledge, reflection, and then through the Vipassana process. We've talked about how the calmness balances the interest to stop it getting excited. 
We've talked about the energy and the concentration and how we've got to be careful about that. And the, the final pair are this equanimity and Dhamma Vichya, the, the, the investigation of the Dharma. So here, uh, the equanimity is that um, the faculty that you know we've been trying to develop with this quiet abiding, right? And it's a it's a funny word in English. I don't think anybody really knows what it means. But in experience, it's openness. It's the ability to receive uh, without judgment, without prejudice, uh, without filtering. See, it's a very and and uh, that can be in certain circumstances a little frightening, especially when you open up to yourself inside. You see, when you get these uh, funny feelings and uh, and emotions that uh, come up very strongly, so that that fearlessness that you need to sort of open up to to what's inside you is part of uh, the quality of equanimity. And that equanimity also is coming from that position, uh, the intellectual position of don't know. So that's really important, you see. And that's rather difficult for us because uh, now we know impermanence and the cause of suffering and this not-self. It's difficult for us to cancel that out and come from a position as if we don't know. So uh, the way we overcome that sort of barrier of thought and opinion is, again, by using this noting word and keeping the noting word close to the actual experience. And that, as it were, cancels out the, uh, the thought process. So remember, um, there's always two things going on when, we, when we're in active communication with the world. There's always some sort of feeling content which is then perceived as either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral... Even at the neutral base, you can, you can separate it as being slightly unpleasant or slightly uh, uh, pleasant. So that, that level of duality is natural to the world. You can't, you can't not live in a world which you don't perceive or you don't feel as being pleasant or unpleasant. The, and at a perceptual level, the mind is always building an image and this image, as it were, goes into the mind. It becomes part of our memory structure. So that when you see something, you remember it. It's part of the memory, you see. And then you use these memories, these concepts, to build up the greater concepts that we have and abstract concepts about freedom, democracy, and all that sort of stuff. So all these things are sort of building up on each other. And somehow, it's, we have to cut through that thinking. So you have to cut through all that... Um, uh, um, con- conceptual thinking because that's the way we're looking at something. See, that's the way we're looking at something. So how do we, how do we go uh, you know, against that sort of conceptual box that we've put ourselves in? See? Well, the noting itself at least reduces the concept to something which is directly connected with what we're actually experiencing. So, for instance, the, um, 
you know, the one I've mentioned before about pain. See, we, we have pain in the knee, and let's presume we've overcome our fear and aversion to it. We're now, we're, we're now uh, very equanimous. In fact, we have a, a lovely feeling towards this pain. And, uh, and you think, pain, what is pain, you see? So, so then you enter into the pain, you get intimate with it, and as you go into it, you find, you find your, your noting word is changing, it's coming, it's coming to tightness or heat, something like that. And then, and then you realize that actually pain is a concept. It's something that the mind produces when a certain set of sensations at a certain velocity or intensity strike the consciousness. And they say, well, now that is pain, see? <laughs> and of course, uh, you have to know that. Or else you'd, be, you'd be in trouble, wouldn't you, if you didn't know what pain, you know, that, that, that it was painful or something wrong with the body, for heaven's sake. But... At the level of our perception, at the level of our delusion, uh, it's, it's good to know that, in fact, pain is a, is a concept and it doesn't actually exist. What exists is fiery, tight feelings, which, when we can get down to that level, uh, don't produce this concept of pain and therefore don't produce the reaction that we have to pain, which is aversion and fear. And it's just just using that sort of... Uh, play with with words, you see. See, the words are are helping us to go beyond these these other concepts that we have. It's the same with um, emotional stuff, you see. Uh, I mean, what's anger? What's anger before you actually give it a name? See, have you been into that? See? What's depression before you give it a name? See, as soon as you say depressed, we're depressed. Anger. I am angry. You see. But if you sit with the anger, what is it? Huh? I thought you'd all tell me. I'm very disappointed in it. <laughs> so that's where your investigation is, you see. And that's where you realize that this, percept, this perceiving mind with its use of concepts, and that's the, that's the purpose of words. Words hold our history with something, you see. They hold our opinions. They hold our relationship with things. So they're, they're in, they, they distort our um, experience of things because they make us look at something, experience something only from this point of view. See? So how do we, you know, to release ourselves from that, we have to go back into the body. Take, for instance, these uh, tea tasters, see? Um, or wine tasters, heaven forbid. And they, they <laughs> you can see that somebody tasting tea, you see, they come up with all these different words. Musty, I can't remember them all, but you get musty and, and they you know, and, and, and well, whatever. <laughs> God. <laughs> now, we don't taste, we, we just swallow it. We don't, you know, like it's just tea. And we might stick some bergamot oil in there and call it Earl Grey, and that gives it something strange. But generally speaking, we don't actually put the tea in our mouths and really taste the tea. Okay? Uh, the Japanese and, of course, the Chinese are absolutely wonderful at this. You know, they'll spend hours just swishing tea around their tongue and, and uh, giving you all sorts of commentary. So it's, that, um, it's the fact that once we say this is tea, we don't really taste it. We're actually satisfying a conceptual idea because we've taken comfort in that, in that, in that tea. But we very rarely taste the tea that we're actually tasting. Now, how do, you, how do you taste this tea, you see? Well, that's 
you put your attention right on the tongue. That's how you overcome these conceptual thoughts, by putting your attention right into the body, into sensation. See? And in that way, these conceptual thoughts, this history, um, doesn't distort the presenting experience. Even at a, at a conceptual level, you see, we come from these awful places called opinions and views, you know, and I am, I am a conservative, you know, I am a, I am a, a labour supporter. We're always coming from a set position, a little box from which we're looking out into the world. And unfortunately, we um, associate with it as an I, it's my identity, right? This is what I am. Yeah? And there's an attachment to it, which is an emotional thing. You get, you get emotionally involved in, in, your, in, your, in your belief system, in your political position, in your uh, position on the ecology and, and on uh, you know, fuel consumption, all that. You get, and we get very tight around it, you see. And, of course, we meet people who have opposite opinions, different opinions, and, uh, and hence you get fisticuffs. You get you know, hit on the nose and all sorts of silly things happen. <laughs> but if you release yourself from this I, right, if you don't define yourself by your opinion, by your, by your situation, if you, um, if you release yourself from an emotional uh, clinging to that, then your word shifts, and we have a lovely word in English, a perspective. So if I have a perspective on things, then I'm much more open to receive your perspective. See, I might not agree with it, but at least I don't see it as a clash. I see it as part of a circle of which I'm standing at this point seeing this position, and you're standing at some opposite point seeing the same position. At least it undermines... Um, you know, all the, all, the, um, all the anger and the frustration and the despair that arises, you know. I often think, uh, can you imagine politics being like that? Well, it, as somebody said, it wouldn't be politics. <laughs> so um, these things are all the, the gift of equanimity. That's what, you, that's what you're gifting yourself when you develop the quality of equanimity. And in the process of... Um, of uh, insight in the process of of um, perceiving things as they really are, a little pat phrase from the Buddha, um, it's absolutely necessary. See? If there's any idea in the immediate investigation of what it is you're supposed to be seeing, then it'll distort what you're what you're looking at. Now you might say, but. But, but Banti, you've been telling us to bring Anicca to mind, this impermanence and all that, you see. But that's as it were, just, just telling us what it is we're trying to see. And then, as it were, you, you forget that and you just go into the presenting experience. See? And in so doing, it's as though this intelligence is primed to see it. See? And then... And then uh, through that uh, insight, there's a direct experience of things arising and passing away. Or you see how this quality of wanting, not wanting, is where the suffering lies. And what it's, uh, uh, what it's actually doing in terms of leading us to an intention which is then empowered. So all the time, you know, I'm, I'm, um, 
urging you to note your intentions because it's so crucial to the process of conditioning and deconditioning. And the anatta, you know, like uh, not to, to come off any conceptual idea of what anatta is. There is no self or whatever. And keep recognizing it as a relationship, you see, a relationship. Remember that any institution, it, it feels solid, but all an institution is a set of rules which establish a relationship. It doesn't matter what it is, see? You might, you might get dressed up in a particular way, um, in a party way, and, but you're still, it's still only describing a relationship. So when you see a policeman, the police, you see, what is it, you see, you substantiate it, you turn it into an object, but actually you're talking about a relationship of this person with you. So run for it. <laughs> see, that's, that's all. That's, so this self is a relationship that the Buddha within has with the psychophysical organism it finds itself in. And that relationship is one of identity. This is me. That's all it is. So all we have to do is keep objectifying what it is I'm experiencing, and in so doing, I'm sort of disembedding this quality of knowing, right? Disembedding it. And in making that an object, not me, it's an object, it can't be the subject, Slowly but surely, I'm discovering what it is that I truly am. Yeah. So that's, that uh, covers virtually the, um, the whole of these uh, five faculties, uh, the, the five spiritual faculties, the seven factors of enlightenment. One little comment before I talk about awareness is that you'll notice that compassion, love, and all that isn't included. Yeah? Now, the reason is that it's presumed we seek liberation from suffering. See? That seeking of liberation from suffering is the compassion towards ourselves. So it's, it's as it were, the attitude of liberating ourselves from suffering is presumed. You see? It's not, but it would, it, uh, it would get in the way of the actual investigation because it's, uh, it's another type of relationship. Having said that, You can, as you observe things, flavor it with kindness. As you observe, say, the pain in your knee, you can look upon it and just flavor that looking with a bit of kindness towards the pain. Yeah? Looking at me in a very strange way. (laughs) But that's what you can do. You can flavor it. But don't, as soon as you start offering loving kindness, trying to heal it, then you're off vipassana, see? So be careful with that one. It's only a suggestion. So finally, um, having seen these uh, passive qualities and active qualities and how they balance each other, uh, there's this quality of awareness, right awareness. So now remember that awareness is with everybody virtually all the time, but it's not right awareness. Right awareness is when you're coming from this position of seeing the three characteristics. That's what the Buddha talks about when he's talking about right awareness. And we're talking about a different level of consciousness, which is where we are investigating um, this, this 
experience that we're having as an objective experience. And even though uh, we say that, remember, when we go into action, we re-enter this uh, psychophysical organism in order to act. But because we've entered from the position of wisdom, it is also right awareness. See? So it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're sweeping the streets or, or, or discovering the next uh, generation of computers, it's all right awareness if you've entered with the right intention into that moment. See? So now awareness, the Buddha talks about it as being uh, the great balancer. He talks, he says, if, if right awareness is there, all these faculties rise to support it. All of them. See? So you don't, so in a sense, this, uh, this talk's been a waste of time. Because, <laughs> because if you just, if I had just kept plugging this right awareness, the rest of it would just have manifested. <laughs> So the key to his whole teaching is his right awareness. This is his real discovery. If you were to uh, use one word of all the words that he used to express the actual practice, it would be this right awareness, this sati. And that's what he discovered. So uh, at all times, you can always reflect upon what is right awareness and am I practicing right awareness? Right? And awareness, awareness is being practiced properly when you're coming from the position of investigating one of the three characteristics. It doesn't have to be a reflection. That's your intention. And you go into the process with that intention. And that's right awareness. In daily life, you move from the position of right intention from one of the uh, proper relationships to the world, which is love, compassion, sympathetic joy, service. See, So remember that this um, wisdom that we have drops into, drops, has to drop into an attitude. And this attitude then moves outwards into the world as, an, as a form of action. Yeah. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all delusive thinking sooner rather than later. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.